I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our audio podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome today Grace Blakely. She's author of The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism. Welcome, Grace. Thanks for having me. So far, the pandemic has multiplied the billions of billionaires. And when you say change capitalism, do you mean for the worse? Because that's what we've experienced so far, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's going to be difficult to say what the long term trends will be. But certainly at the moment, it looks as though um, a lot of uh, trends that are negative, certainly for the majority of the population are deepening. And in the book, I look in particular at three of those trends. So the first one is rising monopoly power and market concentration. And you always tend to see this during crises. Um, you tend to see kind of big firms doing relatively okay, and smaller firms um, struggling and often going under. And then the kind of those those smaller firms being picked off um, by larger companies. So, you know, big firms buying up struggling smaller ones and that accelerating market concentration. But we're seeing that kind of on steroids today, partly because the market, um, sorry, the business models of some of the biggest uh, companies in the market, for example, you know, Amazon are relatively immune from what's going on in the wider economy. Um, and partly just because they've been able to rely, those big businesses, regardless of sector, have been able to rely on a lot of support from the state, um, whereas kind of smaller businesses have actually struggled. So we're definitely seeing a, a, a trend towards much more market concentration, which I think I think will last uh, for many years after the pandemic. The second one, and kind of related to that, is um, the increasing role of the state in the economy. Now, this is often um, understood as something that is the preserve of the left, the left argues for kind of more state intervention in the economy. But actually what we're seeing today is state intervention in um, the interests of kind of private business, basically, and private finance. Um, So states all around the world, um, particularly kind of the biggest states, have made available billions um, of dollars worth of credit to big businesses. They've bailed out lots of businesses um, directly often, and they've provided huge amounts of support for their finance sectors. And it's similar, I suppose, to what happened in the wake of the financial crisis, when again, you had lots of support for the big banks, but um, no one really being made to, no one being held accountable for what, for what had gone on, and no conditions attached to that support. So no kind of, you've got to lend to small businesses, or you've got to fund kind of decarbonization. Um, so a growing role for the state, but definitely not one that's in the interests of the majority of people. And then finally, um, we we're kind of seeing a deepening of trends at the level of the global economy towards growing power for some of the biggest and most powerful states in the world. Now, at the moment, that looks like an exodus of cash out of some of the poorest countries and into the US. So we're seeing a huge debt crisis taking place in the global south at the moment, which is really worrying. But another interesting trend is actually that China looks as though it is not its economy is not perhaps going to be as hurt as much as the US economy. So we're also looking at a kind of potential structural economic shift from west to east as this um, as this uh, pandemic deepens. But again, you know, what is going to happen is, is not going to be in the interest largely of most states in the global south, which are really facing the choice between paying their creditors or just providing the basic medical equipment they need to, to tackle the virus. You refer to Asia, specifically China, and its ability to contain the virus, even though it originated in Wuhan, in Japan and South Korea, in Thailand, elsewhere in Southeast Asia, they have been able to mitigate and eliminate the virus much more effectively than Europe 
and the United States. Um, how do you think the economy will be impacted by not just uh, China's resilience, but broadly Asia's resilience? Yeah, I mean, so there are two questions there. Firstly, as you mentioned, is the kind of um, uh, you know, the effective methods that have been used in a lot of those states to tackle the virus. And I think that's the legacy often of a significant amount of state capacity, right? So it's not necessarily about, you know, authoritarian versus democratic governance, because there's differences on that scale between the countries that you mentioned. But there is a lot more capacity often in the state. And the state is often able to marshal and coordinate a lot more resources um, than states, particularly in parts of the West that have been subject to many, many years of austerity now. So, I mean, if you look at the UK, for example, where I'm from, we've had years of underfunding of our national health service, um, accompanied by underfunding for all sorts of other areas of the state that might have been used to support the response to this virus. So, you know, we don't have enough labs to run tests and those sorts of things. Um, and I think, you know, the, the problem is similar um, in the US, although it obviously differs depending on where you, you look in the US. Um, and the same can be said for Europe. So I think that that issue of state capacity is, is really critical there. And also explains the second thing, which has been the economic response, right? Um, so while uh, Western governments in particular um, have been able to make a lot of cash available to prop up their private um, sectors, they haven't always necessarily used that cash very effectively. And this is a kind of deepening of trends that we've seen over the last 10 years, really, which has been that um, governments have really, you know, in the global north have used very, very loose monetary policy. So very low interest rates, quantitative easing um, in a bid basically to kind of keep the economy going in the context of a deep lack of demand. So a lack of state investment, a lack of business investment um, and kind of, you know, slightly volatile consumer uh, confidence and rising levels of inequality. Um, and that has created all sorts of problems and imbalances in the economy. And it looks like this crisis is going to deepen those. Um, whereas a lot of those countries that you mentioned, not all of them, but quite a few of them have much more coherent and coordinated policies when it comes to state investment in order to boost or actually create demand. Um, and China is obviously, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on how you look at it, the master of this, of using investment basically to kind of create economic growth, often in places where there had been almost no kind of um, real uh, private sector activity going on prior to those interventions. Let me ask you about the European stimulus. Was it or is it in the UK or elsewhere more human-centered than the United States? Because here it was very focused on big business, those major monopoly players, and uh, to some extent, uh, mid-size, I wouldn't say small, but mid-size businesses. Uh, and it wasn't designed in a way that was going to really help human beings. Has the European response or the UK response been more uh, respectful of human dignity and supporting human beings? Uh, certainly not in the UK, unfortunately. I mean, whilst we have had the furlough scheme, which has, I think, been really, really important, and this has been replicated across a number of different European countries, where basically the state has stepped in to uh, subsidise the wages of people who haven't been able to work because of lockdowns. That was critical, actually, to uh, ensuring that the the impact of the crisis wasn't as deep. And obviously, you know, there were some schemes in place in America, but again, it was much less coordinated and there was much less of uh, of that direct support for employment as opposed to the, the cash that was paid out 
out um, to lots of families, again, a lot of which ended up in the stock market. Um, so in that sense, you know, there, there certainly is a difference. But I think as we move further into the pandemic, um, the difference between the US and the UK response will actually start to, to shrink. Um, and that is because, you know, both economies tend to, as I've said, put the interests of, of big business ahead of those of working people. You know, the furlough scheme is going to come to an end. We're going to start seeing very, very high rates of unemployment. The same can obviously be said of the US. And that obviously is a much, much worse situation to be in if you're unemployed in the US because you're potentially losing all those benefits. You're losing your health insurance um, and becoming very, very vulnerable. We've also got a mounting evictions crisis in both of those economies, which is going to seriously impact a lot of particularly young people um, in the UK here in the private rented sector, but also some mortgage holders in the US as well. So uh, Europe has actually, I think, uh, different countries in Europe, particularly in Western Europe, have performed relatively better on some of those things. And partly because many of those economies were in slightly better shape and indeed had slightly more state capacity, as I was talking about prior to this pandemic hitting. But I don't think, you know, many states really have got the balance right. If you're looking at kind of, you know, the classic um, example of like human centered uh, approaches to kind of growth and development, then the Nordic countries probably come out on top. But Sweden has obviously pursued this approach, which now looks as though it you know, potentially wasn't the right one of uh, not really imposing very strict lockdowns and kind of letting the virus spread more. Um, so, you know, I actually think this is really a global phenomenon, is that most leaders in most parts of the world, whether you're looking at the US, the UK, parts of Europe, you know, China, um, Southeast Asia, are really focusing on making sure that for understandable reasons, this virus doesn't decimate their economies. But in doing so, rather than actually focusing on the people who generate value and economic growth, that's people, they're focusing on big business instead. Grace, the derivation of cannibal capitalism or mega monopoly, enormous influence of big business, that is in the United States, the derivation of hyper monopolistic culture is the United States and the refusal of America to enforce what had been historically trust-busting policies. Mm. Um, until the United States revisits its law or its out-of-control monopolization of business, isn't it fair to say that the inequity here, here being the United States and around the world will continue to be uncontrollable and wealth will continue to be accumulated only by the plutocrats. Certainly, if things remain as they are, that looks as though that is the trend. Um, and you can really see it. I think the best way of looking at this is to look at the massive gaps that exist between, you know, the stock market and the real economy. Um, because there has been this shift towards the privatization of people's pension funds, um, because there has been a shift towards privatization more generally, you have a lot of voters who are in one way or another, a lot of citizens who are in one way or another um, involved in or have an interest in the asset economy and stock markets and house prices, etc. And the prospects of that group of people, which is, you know, not just the plutocrats, it's a, a, a you know significant chunk of the population, is increasingly diverging from those who don't have access to those assets. Um, and government policy is increasingly oriented towards a supporting big business, but b propping up asset prices. And I think that's a really, really important thing to, to note, because, you know, in the US, you had that big um, payouts uh, to lots of, of households as part of the stimulus program. And many, many households who didn't really need it, use that to invest 
propping up stock prices. You've had central bank interventions that have all been aimed at propping up equity prices, at, you know, reducing borrowing costs for corporations. Um, and, you know, in doing so have exacerbated this problem of wealth inequality. And then, of course, you have the active support that there's been for lots of big businesses. Um, and also, you know, the huge subsidies that the US in particular provides to a lot of those big businesses, especially the fossil fuel companies. And you start to see that um, a lot of governments, particularly the US government, but also a lot of other governments, including the UK's, are primarily interested in keeping the wealthy wealthy. And what's been interesting is that over the last kind of, uh, you know, decade or so, it seems as though they've been able to do that without, you know, undermining their electoral prospects. And that's partly because they've been able to kind of, you know, basically right wing um, politicians have been able to rely on the support of older voters who have access to some of that wealth. I think what's going to be interesting about this this crisis, and again, this um, has a, a bearing on whether or not these trends continue, is whether or not the young people who don't have access to assets, who are at the sharp end of the evictions crisis, the sharp end of the unemployment crisis, have experienced so many economic crises already in their lifetimes, actually start to push back against this system. And I think that's actually something that we need to keep an eye on because I think that is that could be one of the big changes that actually suggests that we don't end up completely going towards this model of, of plutocracy and oligarchy because people actually organize and push back against it. It is a system in which the electoral or political control has been skewed in favor of the plutocrats by folks who are not plutocrats themselves necessarily, but who are benefiting from the status yeah. quo. This election, even amidst COVID, if it follows the norms of American presidential elections, will be determined by the subset of economic questions that the pandemic provoked. Mm. And it's not clear to me that enough people have been negatively impacted by the pandemic to satisfy the understanding you just mentioned. And it, and mm. it will fundamentally come down to young people. And I think the margin of young people who vote for Biden-Harris, uh, as it mattered so immensely for President Obama's election in 2008 and then subsequent re-election. I think there are two issues to look at here. The first one is the problem that Biden has, which is that a lot of young people simply aren't that infused by him. Um, and I think that's why he's saying a lot of interesting stuff around, you know, climate um, because that is, you know, one of the obvious, for obvious reasons, one of the most central issues that young people are thinking about at the moment um, to try and kind of get that base more excited about coming out and voting for him. Because obviously, you know, getting young people to go out and vote is itself quite difficult. Um, the other thing I think, though, is that Trump faces the inverse of the problem that he faced at the last election, which is that the swing states that, you know, ultimately won it for him Um that relied on a a number of predominantly kind of working class voters who had been shafted um, by the recovery from the financial crisis coming out and saying, you know, enough's enough, I'm voting for Trump. I think a lot of those voters today, even if they don't vote for Biden, could potentially stay at home um, because they are, again, you know, and this is the attitude that I think you see among a lot of working class voters all around um, the global north today is that they're all the same. It doesn't matter who I vote for. I'm not even going to bother voting. That's potentially the biggest danger for Trump, which is something that I think could actually shift the election away from um, away from him. The problem 
over the long term, of course, is that that level of dissatisfaction and disillusionment with politics is not a sustainable foundation for democracy. Right. Uh, Two policies that are going to be critical in determining whether or not the pandemic can lead to more equity or if it just further emboldens the cannibalistic capitalism we've discussed. One we mentioned, which is stimulus that is directed at human beings, um, whether that is in the form of universal basic income or other incentives uh, that are going to directly support American people or citizens overall. In this country, of course, employment is tied to health insurance, and that's why the public option is part of this conversation about human dignity and Mm. what the state can provide folks. So part of it is this question of stimulus to help people recover. But the other part is uh, fighting back against the, the culture of companies like Amazon and Alphabet and the fact that they have gone without antitrust scrutiny. Um, one of those two, the former, is more accessible to young people. Uh, the latter is more of a technical and legal debate. But in order for the economy to to shift constructively, and so the corona crash can can precipitate reform, um, which of those has to happen first? I think there's one other thing that I would add in there, actually, which is decarbonization. Um, I think, you know, we're starting to see already the impact that climate breakdown is having on people and on the economy, right? So it fits into both those categories. And young people in particular are are very, very focused on that issue. So I think the stimulus should be human-centered, but also centered on, on decarbonization and, uh, and on the environment. Um, and, you know, what is interesting, I think, about the idea of something like the Green New Deal, right? Which could be the mantle under which the this this stimulus program, this post crisis stimulus program, could be undertaken, is that it wouldn't just be the government pumping more money into private businesses um, without changing the structures or the foundations of the economy. It would have to be accompanied by a real shift in the balance of power in the economy, right? So, you know, to take an example, I don't think you can have a Green New Deal without getting workers involved in that process and particularly workers in polluting sectors, right? Um, So you need to begin to strengthen worker voice and how these funds are being spent and potentially in the economy more generally, you know, doing things like removing anti-trade union legislation um, and and kind of really recentering the role of of, uh, the people who are actually creating this value in how a lot of this is being done and being spent. And indeed, that would both facilitate a fairer and juster um, distribution of resources as part of the Green New Deal, as well as shifting the balance of power in the economy more generally. Now, of course, that would also have to be accompanied by other top-down reforms if it was going to really take on monopoly power. Um, You know, we do need, as you were talking about, to have a very, very different approach to antitrust um, legislation, as it's called in the US, to move away from the kind of neoliberal turn that we've seen since the 1980s, which has basically been like, as long as it doesn't affect consumer prices, then, you know, we're not that interested. There needs to be a broader understanding of of market power. Um, But I think actually, you know, the whole... um, the whole foundation of what the Green New Deal should be looking at is, as I said, that that question of r- like relative power in the economy. So the power of big business versus the power of workers. Um, and it can kind of 
begin to shift that on both sides at the same time, right? So we don't have to say, do we tackle monopoly power first or do we think about the recovery? I think tackling monopoly power has to be part of the way in which any kind of post-crisis stimulus program is wired. Um, It's not just about spending money. It has to be about, um, you know, empowering working people and also tackling the institutionalized power of, uh, of, you know, basically today's oligarchs. Should Biden be elected, uh, there will be an opportunity to revisit the, some of the failures of the earlier stimulus, which was successful in uh, the relief, but not the recovery for working mm. folks. I'm interested in how you would suggest, based on any effective models in the EU or in the UK, mm. taking that antitrust approach in a way that's going to allow for enduring rights of workers and protect unions. Mm. Because I think those two things go hand in hand. And if these companies are going to continue to exist as conglomerates, monopolies in some industries, uh, they need to protect their workers and they need to and they allow for competition and 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 unions are a major part of that. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of different things that, that can be done and they don't all fall under the, the mantle of traditional antitrust policy. Um, firstly, I think, you know, something that really does need to be done at, like, immediately is that um, companies that receive public money of any form, right, whether that's support from the Fed, support from the state, support from local government must have conditions attached to that lending. So they have to be told if you're going to receive state funding, you have to pay your workers properly. You have to make sure that you're respecting the rights of people to unionize. You have to make sure that you're not actually contributing to climate breakdown and that you're kind of meeting all of these conditions. Um, Otherwise, you are literally just throwing money at the wealthy. um, And that is not sustainable over the long run. There is also, of course, the root of um, actually, you know, reinterpreting and properly enforcing antitrust legislation. And those are two things. So firstly, you know, the basis, the foundations of um, competition law need to be reformed. At the moment, as I was saying, it's all about price. So as long as um, a merger uh, or anti-competitive practices don't affect uh, the price that is charged to consumers, broadly, the approach is the state stays out of the way. And even sometimes if the, the the price does rise, the state is still like, well, you know, government intervention is worse than letting things be. So we're going to kind of, um, we're going to let this one slide. That needs to be changed towards a, a focus on market power. And market power is not just reflected by prices. It's also reflected by wages, for example. You know, a monopoly doesn't have to use its power to increase its profits by putting up prices. It can do so by gouging its suppliers, by um, uh, reducing workers' uh, wages, or by avoiding taxes, right? So all of these things need to be considered when we're thinking about uh, the uh, implementation of antitrust policy. And then there's enforcement. And again, there's this uh, bias towards not intervening because, you know, there's this idea that government failure is always worse than market failure. So there needs to be actual political will behind the enforcement of these decisions. Um, Then I think, you know, there are real questions around a big part today. And I write a bit about this in the book of why um, many of the biggest monopolies are so powerful is that they find it very, very easy to access financing. Right. Whether that's from um, equity markets or bond markets or from banks. Um, 
And that is a problem because it means that society's resources are being channeled towards making the big guys bigger rather than supporting competitors, rather than supporting um, investment in, you know, like decarbonization, in green energy, in research and development and innovation, actually. So I think things like um, national investment banks or um, like a state, a state as in, you know, local state um, owned and also national state owned um, banks and financing institutions are also a really important part of this process of kind of promoting competition in a lot of different markets and in making these markets function um, a bit more effectively because we just have really poor mechanisms to allocate capital basically under under modern capitalism, which is very ironic because they're supposed to be efficient, but they're not. Those companies are have such a stranglehold on power, not just in the United States, but globally. I think that is definitely the case. You know, what we're looking at with um, companies that rely on basically enclosing um, a particular online space and then marketizing and commodifying data is a, is a different challenge to anything we've really faced in the past for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, but I also think it's important to note that this problem isn't unique, that market concentration has been rising across a number of different sectors, um, you know, whether it's finance, telecoms, you know, aviation, whatever, and not just in the US, but also um, around the world. And that is it's kind of actually an inherent trend under capitalism because of economies of scale, because of the close relationships that emerge between monopolies and states, because of those questions around access to finance, there is this trend for big companies to get bigger, and especially during crises for smaller companies to to fail. That structural problem is deadly when you have austerity. The combination of the monopolies and the austerity, as a final question for you, Grace, how bad can this corona crash get? Do you think it can get worse than the, than not just the Great Recession, but the Great Depression? I think it can. And I don't want to sound overly kind of negative here, but because, you know, I think that we actually do have the potential to use this moment as a shift towards a completely different system. I'm not pessimistic about our capacity as, you know, people to change things. What I am pessimistic about is the future of capitalism if it continues as it is, Um, because it does seem as though we are entering an era of the, um, you know, you called it cannibalistic capitalism. I would I would call it kind of planned capitalism, where basically a small number of uh, the heads of big businesses, financial institutions, central bankers, politicians um, are effectively in control of large swathes of the economy and are planning what goes on for everyone else. So the free market is basically dead. We live under a kind of oligarchic planned capitalism. And those trends are only going to deepen if we can't take on the power of those oligarchs. Um, And as I said, you know, I'm completely optimistic about our capacity to do that. I think kind of losing our faith in the idea that things can change is, is part of the problem and has been part of the problem for a long time. But unless we do work together in order to kind of shift the way things work, things could get a lot worse. And, you know, it's all punctuated by the threat of, uh, of climate breakdown, um, which is this kind of overhanging um, catastrophe that, you know, we really need to start tackling now. And with Johnson and Trump at the helm, it seems unlikely that there would be a change in direction. So that's why the political life of 
both of our countries really does matter. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, I kind of put my faith in in young people, in working people who are quite frankly sick of being forced to pick up the costs of crises that have largely been caused by the wealthy and from actually from which the wealthy have benefited. Um, and, you know, I think we are reaching a tipping point in terms of people's willingness to put up with this system. Basically, author of The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism. Thanks so much for your insight today. Thank you so much for having me.